You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. I am your host, as always, Daniel Longer, joined by Sean Kennedy, and joined by Brendan Nunez of the Celtics blog podcast. The Sixers last night took down the Boston Celtics 117-109 to behind a great performance from Joel Embiid. I mean, just a, a very weird and at times unpleasant Sixers game that we're all used to as Sixers fans. Uh, Sean, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. It was good to see some semblance of the normal lineup back out there on Wednesday night. Uh, Seth Curry still out. Uh, he's reconditioning, so he was medically cleared, but they want to make sure that he's ramped back up to basketball conditioning before they throw him back out on the court. So. Yeah, it looks like we could be seeing the the full starting rotation back in gear any day now, which is great. And uh, any win over the Celtics is uh, great as well. So happy to have Brendan on to discuss uh, Wednesday night game as well as the upcoming Friday night in this little baseball series we have here with uh, Boston. Yeah, yeah, Brendan, I mean, you probably know, having seen Sixers fans go up against the Celtics a lot, how tense they get against the Celtics. So just kind of the animosity that is there. How do you think Celtics fans thought about that game against the Sixers the other day? Yeah, I think it's a two-way street. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you see the intensity come from uh, from both fan bases. And, you know, Celtics fans, and I guess uh, Smart was a little vocal post-game, I guess being a little upset about, about fouls. But I'm not typically one of those guys. And obviously, Joel Embiid's just a monster at doing that in general, a big part of his game. Uh, so I think the intensity is definitely going to come from from both sides of the fan base, and it just makes it even more fun. Yeah, I mean, I like Marcus Smart a lot. He we've been doing like this uh, progressive like top one hundred players NBA draft here at Liberty Ballers, like just over the last week, and I took Marcus Smart to my starting five. But uh, he, let's just say, he's not the one who should be complaining about foul calls given some of his, <laughs> and you know, not a great look for him. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I think Joel Embiid's a little floppy sometimes, but I, I think that, you know, that's genuinely become a part of the NBA, even if I don't like to see it. Um, players do it on both sides. You know, you'll see Tatum do it, and like you're kind of hinting at, you'll see Smart do it. So, I mean, it's definitely not the reason that Boston ended up losing this game. Mm-hmm. That was like Daniel Day-Lewis complaining that another actor gets too much into character. <laughs> Uh, well, Joel and B and Marcus Smart both, for the most part, played pretty good games. You just look at like the box scores. Smart finishing with around twenty-five points. Joel Embiid with forty-two points, twelve of nineteen shooting, and just—I mean, we say it all the time, Sean. All Sixers fans say it all the time. He is just this year. It's been unbelievable how much better 
he's gotten like I used to sometimes get upset when he would settle for those mid-range pull-ups felt like oh that's like just they can do better but now it's like Joel gets a mid-range pull-up kind of think it's going in because he's just it just feels like he's honestly become a much better creator himself this year for sure it's the continued evolution of this game has been great to watch this season in regard to the mid-range stuff it's it's that he's getting the ball earlier in the shot clock and he's recognizing situations where it is one-on-one and he can kind of break down the defender a little bit and get into his rhythm to for when he does decide to do those pull-ups it's the shot he wants to take so he's comfortable with them it's not hey I got the ball with eight seconds left in the shot clock and I got pushed out to 18 feet away from the basket and I had to then kind of like chuck something up with a few seconds left Uh, like the offense is more fluid and he's recognizing when he does get the ball and those doubles are coming that he needs to get rid of it and he's a lot more effective in that area so just everything flowing together it's been an MVP caliber season for Joel and last night was just another in a what's been a tremendous start to the season for him it wasn't even his top scoring performance in the last 10 days that's that's how incredible it was yeah Yeah, I think Brendan I wanted to get your take on this um I know in the past like when people see the Sixers going up, the Celt- going up against the Celtics, they kind of think, oh, Joel Embiid should be able to dominate inside. But that hasn't always been the case. The Celtics are usually an incredible team defense that knows when to double, when to send help, when to – just knows how to bother him, no matter, like, if they are undersized. Did not feel like that the other night. Uh, what was the big difference that you saw? Yeah, I mean, I think in years past, um, Al Horford individually always did a great job on Joel Embiid. Um, I know that's that's kind of going back a little bit here, um, but I, I think that you know that that personnel used to work well, and, and then last season, um, it, it really was a team defense effort, as it always is, and the team defense of. Boston this season has really been lackluster. Um, You know, Grant Williams hasn't played great as a starting four. I think Tristan Thompson was, I think there's an argument he was specifically brought in like for Joel Embiid. Um, Well, I guess you would say Joel Embiid. And then you look at like Bucks and slowing down Giannis. Bam Adebayo was able to take advantage of Daniel Tice. Um, But Tice did a much better job than Tristan Thompson on Embiid this game. And I think a lot of it had to do with uh, putting in work before um, Embiid got the ball of just not allowing him to catch it with a foot in the paint or on the block and kind of just forcing him to catch it a little further out in that mid-range sort of area. Um, but obviously Embiid was still really able to take advantage of either one of them, but it, it was pretty disappointing that Thompson was not um, more efficient in slowing down Embiid there. But I think also um, some of the lineups that, that Boston's rolling out there just doesn't feature Uh, promising off-ball defenders in the way that you would hope. And obviously a lot of that has to do with Tatum not being available. Um, But it's a reason you saw Javante Green end up with 28 minutes and even, you know, some closing minutes there towards the end um, because he was just a energy guy that really most of his impact is going to come on the defensive end of the floor. Um, So I I think they're really missing Jason Tatum's off-ball defense and the rest of the roster, some of the guys you're rolling out there are just straight negatives on the defensive end of the floor with, uh, you know, you look at Jeff Teague and and Peyton Pritchard and Kemba Walker. So I think the team defense overall this year has had a lot of work to do in getting comfortable. And and like you guys were saying with Philadelphia, you know, you haven't quite 
seen your full healthy roster altogether. It's been the same thing for Boston. So I'm hoping, hoping that getting everybody back, um, that the starting five at very least will get back to a little bit of that promising defense. But I, I wish that Thompson would have done a little bit better job of not allowing Embiid to catch it so deep into the paint. Um, and maybe that's a little different in the next showing. Well, Javante Green, who I, I thought he might have something. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get the image out of my head of Furkan Korkmaz dunking over him with two hands <laughs> reversed. That was kind of – like I, I tweeted this out last night. I was not able to watch the second half of this game live. I had to um, check the second half out at like 1 a.m. last night, and just I'm in the middle of like my dorm, just and I see this dunk happen. I freaked out, and I just had to like scream in silence. So <laughs> – but uh, you mentioned Jason Tatum being out. And I mean, that's just obviously a big thing. Like wing defenders who are that long, that smart as, ta- as smart as Tatum is, take up a lot of space. Just kind of, if you have tall guys with long arms who know what they're doing, they tend to make your defense better. And Tatum fulfills all those categories. So him being out obviously hurts the Celtics. And then on offense, it probably means like, even though Jalen Brown's been really good and Marcus Smart is a good player, you had to place more of a load on them, I'm guessing. Like, I mean, Jalen Brown's been insanely good this year, but I still felt like there was just so much of the Celtics offense that was Jalen Brown coming off of some dribble handoff, some off-ball screen, curling to his right and just taking a ton of jump shots, which, I mean, it kind of felt like they had to do because they didn't know where else their offense was going to come from. Yeah, it's funny. It's just kind of been a problem with the offense all season. And we haven't seen uh, Kemba, Jalen, and Jason all play together. But it's almost like they overcorrected from last season where it felt like everybody was passing up um, maybe opportunities where they could have taken things into their own hands, looking for an opportunity to get other people involved um, when, when Gordon was on the floor as well there. And then this season, it seems very clear that there's a pecking order where, you know, it's, it, it was Jason clearly the number one and Jalen, it, it was really those two guys were taking a large majority of the shots. Now Kemba comes back and the offense is 100% run through him. The time's out there. Um, you know, Jalen didn't have a great impact in the first half. I think he's been, been a little complacent and not as aggressive in looking for the ball as I'd like with those Kemba minutes out there as well. Um, So, yeah, I think the offense you described is actually kind of what it's been for most of the year. Um, It's really a pick and roll, and if that doesn't work, you swing it to the other side. If it's passed to a player on the perimeter, it goes into another pick and roll. If it's a big man, it becomes a dribble handoff, Um, and really all of the offense is going to come from shots of – Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, or, or Jason Tatum, or maybe, you know, if, if it happens to be one of these other guys that it's swung to on the perimeter, they'll throw up a three. I, I wish that, like, for example, Shemi Ojale this season um, had been attacking the paint a lot more, but recently he settled for three-point shots. He only got up one in this game, but I, I wish the other guys on the roster would have been hitting the paint a little bit more often. Um, and there, there's definitely still a little bit of getting used to to playing with Kemba out there, this only being his second game back. So, so Brennan, it's interesting you talk about the offense. I, I remember back when Kyrie first came to Boston and they were talking about, oh, how will he fit in the Brad Stevens-style offense because he was such an ISO player and was it's going to be a good fit. And it, it, it worked, obviously, because he's a great player and – you put a great player in a, in a good offensive scheme, it, good things are going to happen. 
Um, so now you're talking about they finally kind of drifted away from the free flowing ball moves around and then eventually you'll you'll break a seam into the defense to more of a hey you got a pecking order we got to set this play for this guy and make sure that he gets a shot here was that just them kind of coming to the realization that Tatum is this blue chip guy and Jalen's right there behind him and you have Kemba so we need to get these guys featured more was that like a, a talking point coming into the season at all or is this just kind of caught you by surprise I think it, it was definitely a talking point coming into the year. You heard it preached a lot. And I think that when you look at the personnel, um, after Jalen, Jason, and Kemba, it really is just like complimentary players when you're talking about the offense. I know they were pretty top-heavy last year, but I, I think it's a big difference having a fourth one out there as well. Um, and, and, you know, Gordon Hayward being – who I think is an all-star caliber player um, and, and has done pretty well in his start in Charlotte as one of the feature guys – um, so it was definitely a talking point in emphasis going into this year. And I think it makes some sense with the personnel that you threw out there. I wish that, you know, you didn't spend $5 million on Jeff Teague. Um, and I don't think anybody expected Pritchard to be as good as he is, um, already coming into the league, even being a four-year guy out of Oregon. And I admittedly hated the pick at the time. Um, but I wish that, if you were going, if it was so clear that you were going with this pecking order, um, that you surrounded them with more defensive role players that are just kind of, you know, three and D players. Like I, I think that the Philly situation is kind of similar where you saw the right complementary pl players, um, correct me if I'm wrong, like thrown around the roster this year. And it's made a big difference for the stars that it's run through. No, I mean, the complementary players this year, just, we, I mean, we said it all the time. Danny Green and Seth Curry might be worse overall players than Josh Richardson and Al Horford, but they make more sense around Joel Embiid because they do not – They honestly, neither of them really has much at-rim offensive value. They're pretty much just providing spacing behind the arc, but that's exactly what the Sixers need. Um, Yeah, it does I, – I know what you're saying there. The Celtics just getting Jeff T, getting Peyton Pritchard, going after Tristan Thompson, kind of – adding bigs and guards and I feel like if you're gonna have if you're gonna have a team that has a lot of top end talent like the Celtics do in their starting five that's probably the best thing you could do to fill out the rest of your roster is try and find a lot of like switchable versatile wings because just the thing of wings is if they're a certain height and they're certain and they're like mobile enough you can basically play them anywhere and that's I mean you just look at the Celtics it's why they have to play Shemi Ojale's workout warrior, not exactly a, an incredible basketball player. Javante Green, great vertical, hustles a lot, but also like, I mean, I, I was watching that game last night. He he makes some pretty glaring mistakes sometimes and offensively needs to learn how to add a bit more value. So yeah, it's just, I mean, there's a little bit of a guilty pleasure as a Sixers fan, kind of listing off the Celtics mistakes. Like we haven't had plenty of our own, even though things have gotten better under Daryl Morey. Yeah, it's funny. The wings felt like so obvious, right? Like, I think that last year, the Celtics were such a switchable team with these three wings in, in Gordon, Jalen, Jason that could play any of those like two to four positions, I guess, or really Brad kind of has dubbed the, you know, uh, 
gone away from positions traditionally and it's more of just initiators, wings, and bigs. Um, and, and he had those clear three wings. And I think a lot of times now he's rolling out two ball handlers. Like you see minutes of Teague and Pritchard alongside one another that I absolutely hate um, for the defensive end of the floor. And, and I don't think that, um, yeah, I mean, the Teague, the Teague signing specifically ha- has been a little agitating to me and I'm starting to question it more and more as years go on, as uh, games go on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wish that they had gotten a little more size. I think that Tatum can play the four fine. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a hole at the four specifically, but a wing in some sort of way. And I actually do think there's a chance that, that Romeo Langford could kind of fill that role. Um, you know, he was a, a lottery pick not long ago. And um, you saw Brad Stevens even trust him to get on the floor in that Miami series before he was hurt again. Um, so I think that he is an interesting guy that is a somewhat versatile defender that has an ability to put the ball on the floor and kind of play make for others. So I'm holding out a little bit of hope that he can kind of be one of these wing guys that fills that role. I mean, to be fair, so, Brennan, let me ask you with, um, you mentioned that, you know, Tatum's been out and you really haven't gotten to see the top guys together for too often this year. Um, or maybe not at all, given Kemba missed a lot of time at the beginning of the season. Uh, but what? how has your expectations changed with, you know, you mentioned Teague being a little disappointing as time goes on as an addition to the roster, and we saw Thompson not really do, do much to contain Embiid last night. But overall, do you feel Boston has dropped in your overall expectations? Because I would say coming in, you guys had been right there in the playoffs, that series against Miami could have gone either way. And I would say you were had as much chance as anyone to come out of the East, but now Brooklyn getting hardened has taken a step ahead of uh, some teams in Daniel in my estimation. And Milwaukee has looked solid again. Do, do you still think they are right there in that upper tier or do you feel like, Boston is more of like a puncher's chance if everything breaks right, but you've kind of lowered your expectations. Yeah, I think, I think it's more so things have to go right for them. Um, I, and what mainly does it is that I expected going into this year, a top five defense and a struggling offense when these key guys were, were kind of missing their shots. Um, Because I mean, it was clear again, going into the year, it was going to be, fully on the shoulders of, of Kemba, Jalen, and Jason. Kemba came back quicker than I expected, and I'm hoping that um, helps a lot of the offense. But they've actually been a decent offensive team, and the defense has struggled. Um, and I think that defense is where a lot of consistency comes from because you can bring that night in and night out, and sometimes shots just don't fall on offense. Um, so the defense being uh, underwhelming, I, I think, has really surprised me. Um, Grant Williams is a guy that I thought would be able to fill this four role better than he has. Um, and obviously, you know, doing a lot of starting Tristan Thompson and uh, Daniel Tice alongside one another I, I was supposed to, you know, have its offensive issues, but be promising on the defensive end of the floor. Um, because I think Tristan Thompson is actually a pretty switchable defender. Um, but that lineup has been, has been pretty horrible. Um, so, I mean, I do kind of think that things need to need to break right for them. Um, I think that there is a chance that this starting lineup that they have does look really well. And I think that if Romeo works his way back into the rotation, that you can find a, a seven, eight man rotation that's promising going into the playoffs. Um, but 
I, I think that you're going to really have to ride those guys out a lot um, unless there's something that goes on with the TPE or anything like that. Um, I would say that things have to break right for them. And maybe Jalen keeping up this ridiculous play is what is that um, outlier that, that kind of is something falling in the right direction for them. Um, but I would say that Milwaukee and Brooklyn are a tier above and uh, Philadelphia. I mean, if it came to a series, I, I probably would, would feel more comfortable betting on Philadelphia. So like, I think there's a chance that things fall right for Boston. Um, but I think that it's going to take a bit more development. And I think going into the year, I kind of already felt like this too, that it was going to take a little bit more development from uh, Jalen and Jason and then also, you know, Neesmith's going to need to work his way into eventually being an NBA player and, uh, and Romeo coming around to health as well. So I think there's a way that, that there's going to be internal improvement over the next couple of years. And I think that that's kind of when they real, really reach championship contender level. Well, Brendan, I'll let you know that betting on Philadelphia is always a risky proposition. It's whether it's the city, the sports teams, whatever it is. But um, no, would not recommend it. Yeah, but uh, Jalen Brown, you mentioned just how – I mean, I mentioned him too, just how good he's been this year. Like, could, go if you went back in time and told, like, 2018 you that Jalen Brown will be pretty – look pretty much just better than Ben Simmons does because, I mean, he, he is. He's just better than Ben Simmons is right now, and it's not very close, I don't think. Like, just how shocking is that that one guy really hasn't developed much except for – I mean, I guess Ben Simmons become a better defender, more engaged. He has great hands. He's still really great on that end. But, I mean, Jalen Brown, I think, is still a, for the large part, a net positive on defense. Although I know he's he's been ragged for his off-ball defense before, but really good on-ball defender. And then just with the ball in his ha- hands now, Jalen Brown's like a creator. He can score. He can, he can put all these dribble moves together. He had that one basket on Ben Simmons where ever, it was basically like he went to – if I want to remember correctly, like two crosses and like spun back in the paint. Ben Simmons can't do that. And self-creating jumpers is one of the most important skills in basketball. Ben Simmons is nowhere near close to it. It looks like Jalen Brown's starting to figure it out. Yeah. And the true, like unexpected jump that he's made for sure has to be that handle that I think the, the unexpected jump probably happened last season but there's even more of an improvement going into this year. And it's been the playmaking as well that he started uh, not great in that aspect. And, you know, some people were quick to say Jalen's played better than Jason, um, but truly Jalen has played well because Jason's doing so much of the initiating. I don't think that Jalen could be the primary guy initiating an offense quite yet, um, but it's these dribble packages. That's, that's absolutely insane. And in putting multiple moves together, um, like you're saying, you know, a double crossover uh, behind the back, into a spin move or things like this Um, and he's always had a very promising mid-range jumper um, because he just gets so high he obviously is a ridiculous vertical athlete um, and and all-around athlete really Um, but he gets so high on his jump shot and has a really high release that you know it feels borderline unblockable at six seven with the athleticism that he has sometimes and his mid-range shot has been ridiculous this year um he's shooting 58 percent on shots between the free throw distance 14 feet to uh the three-point arc 
which is just ridiculous. And I don't know that that's the most sustainable, um, but right now he's hitting them at a great rate. And, um, and so you, you feel comfortable with him, with him uh, shooting those. And like you're saying, he's creating for himself in a way that I don't think anyone expected. It seemed like, uh, you know, he's a, he's a very smart person, obviously. And I think he's a very smart player, but sometimes it seemed like his brain was a few steps ahead of where his specifically handle probably was. And he knew where he wanted to get to, but wasn't quite tight enough to be able to do so. And I think really the, the ball handling and, probably patience has really been the the biggest jump from Jalen that was, I think, just really unexpected from anyone watching. Sean, I want to ask you something here real quick. If you swapped Ben Simmons for Jalen Brown right now for the Sixers, how much do you think that would move the needle for the Sixers? Because I think we both think of them right now as a pretty good team, a team that's largely been carried by Joel Embiid's insane production on both ends but probably not a team that we think can beat the Nets or the Bucks or really compete for the title. Just like they're close, but they're not quite there yet. Do you think just saying straight up trading Ben Simmons for Jalen Brown in some weird world where that could happen, how, just how much better would that make the Sixers? It wouldn't make them a surefire favorite in the East or anything, but I think it would definitely help. I think it would reduce their margin for error or I'm sorry, increase their margin for error. It would allow them to have more margin for error. Um, yeah, it gives them not much of a drop-off defensively. Jalen Brown, very good wing defender. He's not quite as switchable across large positions as Simmons is, because Simmons is a bigger guy. Um, but he's still very good, and he just gives you so much more uh, dynamic play on offense with his ability to score across three levels and with his evolving off the dribble game that Brennan just discussed, that's something the Sixers desperately need from their, you know, secondary creators and that would fill the role perfectly. So you're talking about a slight drop off in defense with a very helpful skill set on offense. I think that could, potentially swing one or two more games for you in a series, which could be the difference between losing in the second round and advancing to the conference finals or even go to the finals potentially if everything breaks right. So it would be a big help for sure. Um, it, it's kind of interesting because uh, Spike Eskin just tweeted out a little before we started recording like basically a 2016 redraft, like do you put Jalen Brown first and then some other guys in the discussion are obviously Ben who went one and then uh, Brandon Ingram, Jamal Murray. I, I don't know if you put Sabonis in there. I guess he's probably a tier below those guys, but between Simmons, Ingram, uh, Brown and Murray, it's kind of hard not to say maybe taking Brown at one. I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't know. I kind of, I think Brandon Ingram's pretty good, and it's been playing well this year. Uh, Ingram does one thing that I really like where a player, he'll jump into guys, like when he goes up for layups, kind of absorb the contact, and then lean around them midair with his long arms. He's really good at doing that, and I, I think Ingram's very good. I, it is sad, though, that <laughs> I, I think at the end of, let's say, 2019 season, definitely, and probably midway through 2020, everyone would have said, oh, Ben Simmons is still number one. 
and he's just not really right now. I mean, there have been some people pondering whether Simmons is fully healthy. Um, we saw some plays like last night, like where he had the steal against Jeff Teague, and he did get the dunk when he euro stepped him afterwards, but like. Ben was not accelerating after he poked that ball away, which is something we've seen from him before. Just once he gets something tapped away in the open court, him just taking off, and he just does not seem to have that gear anymore. But regardless, I mean, Ben is just – it feels very static with Ben. It feels like not much is changing. He, If anything, the offense is getting worse because defenses have figured out, oh, yeah, this guy's not a great crafty finisher. He doesn't have a ton of – like dribble moves to get around you or shift to the rim. Like at least Giannis has that kind of spin move or just those really hyper extending arms that he can get all the way to the rim with where Ben is really not that he's more just like this boulder crashing into you over and over again. And it's just not working right now. I, I think, I think Ingram and Brown have to be one and two and I'm not sure I would delineate. And then man, Sabonis, Jamal Murray and Ben Simmons is the next three would be a very, like, I mean, I'll toss it to you, Brendan. Like, what do you think about that question? Yeah, I feel like I pretty comfortably actually take Brandon Ingram one. I think that there is an outside shot. Like, you've seen really notable improvement every single year from Ingram. And I think that he's become a really good playmaker along with, I mean, moments of genuinely an unstoppable score. Um, I think he's really understanding where he's – his spots on the floor are. Um, I, I know, I think it's actually kind of talked about too much, but there is something to like, if, when he's able to put on a little bit of weight, which maybe just never happens, but I would think that he's going to be able to put on a bit more. Um, he already plays with a decent physicality for his size. Um, I, I actually think that, you know, if you had a one, a one B that Ingram could be one of those guys on, like a championship caliber team. I'm, I'm just like extremely high on Ingram. Um, and then man. Yeah. I mean, Jalen has really played himself into a really promising offensive role this year. I do need to see him do it more often um, or, or just more really like keep this up throughout the season, because again, he's shooting a ridiculous amount of mid range shots and, and they're really falling right now. Um, but I, I don't know that, I am the most confident in him keeping that up. So I, I do need to see it a little bit more, but there's something about, um, you know, Simmons obviously just having a very clear flaw in his game that uh, probably makes him number three there for me because I'm also a sucker for defense. And I think that, you know, Simmons is um, can really be one of the best defenders in the league if he's not already in that conversation. Um, so I'm a little bit of a sucker for that. And I think if, you know, you were kind of revolving a, a team around him and it, it wasn't, uh, you know, paired with a, a player that clearly um, is kind of run through the post and deservedly so and jolt well and beat him. I, I think that Simmons could look, could look maybe better than he does right now. So I probably would go Simmons third there. Um, but it, it actually is a really interesting conversation that I hadn't considered. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. 
And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Yeah, just, and I also think we might even be dismissing Sabonis and Jamal Murray too, but those are two really good players. I mean, Jamal Murray's perception is skewed by the bubble where he just, he just decided he wasn't going to miss any contested shot for like a one month period. And Sabonis has come out this year under Nate Bajorkian's new, I, I hope, I probably butchered that last name, but whatever. His new head, his new system for the Pacers and just kind of acting as their hub, passing really well out of it, just mashing people inside whenever he has someone that he feels like is smaller than him. Like Joel Embiid versus DeMontis Sabonis, they go up against each other. It'll be a fascinating matchup because those are two of the stronger guys in the league, although Embiid probably is just a little physically bigger and he's generally had his way against the Pacers. Uh, it's well known among Sixers fans that whenever the Sixers play the Pacers, Miles Turner will foul out in 15 minutes of play. He just he's one of those guys who cannot guard Joel without fouling him. So that that would definitely be part of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Murray Murray's just not consistent enough. His his yeah. peak in the bubble was tremendous, as you just alluded to, but he still has games where he just has like 12 points and kind of disappears, and you don't really even notice him for long stretches. So I, I comfortably have him in the, in the second tier when we're talking about these guys. And then Sabonis, I just don't know if he does enough defensively for me. I mean, he's fine, but I don't, I don't think he's elite enough in offense to make up for the fact that he's not a plus-plus defender like a couple of the, these other guys are. Yeah, I'd probably go Ingram um, as my comfortable one. I think tier two is is Brown and Simmons, and I actually think there could be an argument for Simmons over Brown um, if it was the right roster surrounding him. Um, and, and then, yeah, I'd go Sabonis pretty comfortably over Murray there. I think that's fair, although that, I think it speaks to just – it's it's weird. All five of those players are all very good players, but none of them are of the superstar class like – like when we look back at the classes now in their third year in the NBA, we think, oh yeah, Luka Doncic, he's number one. There's no question, it's him. Then you start to get a little bit of more debate. But with this class, it's very interesting. I know you said Brendan that you would have Brendan Ingram there at number one, but and like even if he is probably the number one, it's still hard to delineate between all of them because those are all very solid. Like, I mean, I would definitely say at least top fifty, probably even higher than maybe top all top 40 players in the NBA. And that's kind of weird to get that all in one class, just have so many guys who maybe aren't at the very like upper echelon of the NBA, but are all in that very nice sub tier below it. And it was seen as a pretty weak class too, actually. So it's a pretty surprising outcome for sure. No, yeah, definitely. Um, Brendan, one thing I wanted to ask you real quick is that obviously a lot of animosity between the Sixers and the Celtics I don't know if you would know this, but how do you think Celtics fans compared to players of the Sixers past feel about Joel Embiid? Do you think he's a guy who's kind of really despised by Boston sports fans? Or do you think he's just like normal, like uh, another player on the team that we play a lot and maybe one that they're a little confident going up against because the Celtics have beaten the Sixers in the playoffs twice now? Yeah, um, I don't think that it's too different. Um than other key players. Um, I think a lot of it is just like, I mean, it's been clearly about because center's always been kind of the weak spot for Boston. Um, it, it's just been clearly about, okay, how are we going to slow down Joel Embiid? And I think the fan base grew a little 
um, comfortable in, in the, again, like Horford Baines sort of years where I think Boston was regularly doing a really good job of slowing down and down and beat. And I think forcing him to kind of settle for shots. Um, so I think that the fan base may have gotten a little comfortable playing against the talent that's in bead that is, uh, really going to kind of, in my opinion, do whatever he wants at this point. So I think frustrations will start to grow more this year as Embiid really is just kind of, in my mind, going to be able to dominate this roster. Well, you did do a great job of kind of incepting Philadelphia into believing that they had to take on Horford because he was viewed as this kind of Embiid stopper. And we, we all know how that worked out here. So you uh, you you successfully ruined a Sixers season by convincing the front office that they had to take on Horford. So good job there. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take the small wins. That works. Oh man, yeah, I definitely feel like there's more animosity from the Sixers side. Like U.S. Sixers fans, they don't like Tatum because of the Fultz trade and just how painful that is. They definitely do not like Marcus Smart because it feels like Marcus Smart always shoots really well against the Sixers. I mean. He probably shoots normally compared to other teams, but it feels like there's been a lot of Marcus Smart scores a lot of points games against the Sixers. Al Horford is already – I think I mentioned it to Sean way back maybe in the summer. It's Al Horford. is How far up there is Al Horford in all-time, like, Sixers villains? Because he is way high up there, just how despised he is. Uh, yeah, so I, I definitely think there's more um, – there might be a little more hate stemming from the Sixers side. Do people yeah. not like Tatum? Is that is that like a really well known thing? Because I I actually I, I love Tatum and I I steer all of my anger about the Fultz Tatum trades dead on to Brian Colangelo and well, yeah, probably more, it, it all resides there. Probably more hate towards Colangelo, but I'm sure Sixers fans don't like seeing Tatum succeed, knowing they could have. There there's a world where maybe they have him. Right. Yeah. I let me tell you, I got so hyped on Fultz. Fult tape uh, going into that season since he was like the clear one for so long. I was, I was so excited on Fultz. Yeah. So I, what was your instant reaction when that trade went down? Then? I, I mean, I kind of just trusted in Ainge, I guess at the time, like I wasn't fully deep in, in analyzing at the time. So it was more of a emotional reaction. And a lot of my uh, analysis of the draft was really just watching a lot of highlight tapes. So I saw like the length of Tatum and in, in the tough shot making, but I don't know, I had gotten myself so excited with Fultz. So I actually was admittedly a little disappointed at time at the, at the moment. Um, but again, like I, I wasn't super deep into analyzing the draft or even like that much of the NBA at the time I wasn't doing any writing or podcasting or anything like that. So I think I just emotionally had already accepted that Fultz was going to be on the team and gotten so excited. So I was a little disappointed, but uh, I, I got over that when Tatum's very first game was a game winner in uh, summer league against the Sixers. Emotional acceptance is something that's really hard to come by for Sixers fans. I mean, even on a lesser scale, I just remember being heartbroken when they traded away Mikhail Bridges for Zaire Smith and the pick, even though it meant, made sense from an asset management standpoint. And obviously things just did not work out for Zaire for, I mean, some on-court reasons, but it's hard to know what would have ever happened if, you know, the Sixers had an accident, accidentally almost killed him. But, you know, Mikhail Bridges was a guy – he went to Villanova. His mom worked for the Sixers. Everyone thought he would slot him perfectly as a 3 and D winger on a team. And, I mean, look at 
Mikael Bridges right now, because Devin Booker's been struggling, but the Suns are still doing pretty well. Mikael Bridges is like the Suns' second best player right now. He's been playing incredible. Yeah, he might be the most improved player of the year. Like he's been he's been ridiculous. I think the top two candidates are him and Jalen Brown, honestly, for that award. Yeah. Daniel, uh, are you are you bringing back sh- or should have been a Sixer? Segment? Oh yeah. <laughs> During the darkest <laughs> days of the Sixers in the bubble, we had a a bit about uh, what was it? Um. Sixers roster complaint corner, something like that. There were a lot of Jeremy Grant discussions, um, complaining about Trey Burke when he went off to the Mavericks in the bubble. Uh, Mikhail Bridges definitely came up a few times. Yeah, the, this was all before the Sixers hired Daryl Morey, though. So, you know, it's, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Celt- the Celtics have their own pain. I had to watch Desmond Bain get picked by the team oh. just to get traded away. And I was low on Aaron Neesmith going into the draft. Um, I did I think I did like 50 something guys this was my first year really getting into the draft and was so uninspired by Pritchard that I forgot to even rank him so I was so disappointed in this draft and and Pritchard outperformed my expectations but Neesmith has been horrible to start no I we did a a live stream with a bunch of people from Liberty Ballers on and I, I tackled a lot of the draft, too, and I just remember we were all loving it when Aaron Neesmith and Peyton Pritchard got picked instead of Desmond Bain because, I mean, Desmond Bain would have fit perfectly for the Celtics. Yeah. A guard slash wing who won't miss shots when he's open, and you can basically just – you can throw him out there and say, hey, this guy can shoot, and he's not bad at everything else, and he'll just come off your bench and be great. That's exactly what he's done for the Grizzlies. Who, I mean, the Grizzlies are draft Twitter's team. We all know this. They are just unbelievable at doing what everyone else says it would be really smart to do. They've done it all these years in a row now. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, Desmond Bain, we wanted the Sixers to take Tyrese Maxey when he was still there at 21, thought he was the best player and a pretty good fit, and he's been nothing short of excellent. But, you know, if it wasn't Tyrese Maxey, Desmond Bain was probably everyone's next favorite option for the Sixers. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, Tyrese Maxey should have been the guy uh, going to Boston at 14. I, I do a lot of Kings coverage, too, and I had talked myself into Tyrese Maxey at 12, and obviously Halliburton falling was um, was just the luckiest thing in the world. But, yeah, no, I, I mean, Maxey's an absolute steal, and it's ridiculous that he fell, same as Bain. Hey, there's not a, there's not a long history of the Sixers making the adept smart move and the Celtics screwing up, so, you know, it has to happen for the Sixers every once in a while. I guess. I guess. Oh, man. Uh, how are you guys thinking about the Sixers-Celtics game tomorrow night? I know it's weird because with the NBA, there's not a lot of game-to-game predictions from, like, if you're listening to podcasts, watching shows, or re- reading articles. Like, there's not a ton of that because, you know, there's so many games on a weekly basis, especially in this condensed schedule. It's not like the NFL where you know the games are Sunday, so it's all, like, everyone talking about this game and, fewer games so that they each have a bigger impact but do you guys have any inclination to how you think tomorrow tomorrow's game which by the time people are listening this this will be on Friday morning so tonight's game for those people listening how that's going to play out between the Sixers and the Celtics I'll mention Tatum is definitely out also in case you guys didn't didn't see that that was announced in the last hour Um, yeah Brandon why don't you start us off yeah I mean I think that the other day I, I looked at the standings and obviously this is altered a little bit and Boston was sitting at one in the East and I was so shocked because I actually feel like they've been playing horrible basketball, um, but just been able to sneak away with wins. 
Um, you know, the, the first Milwaukee game, I honestly don't even understand how that fully happened. Um, but they played a Washington team that's been, that's been horrible. Um, I think Miami and Toronto have really been underperforming. Um, and, and then they played Detroit twice. They've played Memphis. Like they've really only played teams that are of their caliber, maybe three times throughout the season. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, obviously just had that terrible stinker against, against the Knicks, which is just an outlier game that I think good teams just kind of have throughout the year. Um, so honestly, I, I don't feel like Boston's been playing great basketball. And I think that it's going to take a, a big game from, from Kemba who already looks kind of back to speed, by the way, um, definitely has his shiftiness to him. And yeah, I, I hope that Jalen can be aggressive for the entire game because it didn't feel like I really, um, he was, making himself known until the second half. But um, I, I don't think that they have enough creation um, against what is a really good defensive team against the Sixers. And like I said, the defense hasn't been holding up as great as I would have hoped going into these years. So yeah, honestly, if I, uh, if I had to bet on it, I, I would lean towards Philadelphia. What's weird about the Sixers is that, so they started out as one of the best defenses in the league. They were first for, I think, the first two weeks or so of the season, according to cleaning the glasses per 100, per 100 possessions, like how many points they're allowing with garbage time cut out. But they've kind of fallen back. They're around eighth, and their offense is only in 16th. But you look at it, that's, I mean, it means they're a good team, but it's not like they're dominating. Really just the big key for the Sixers has been guys around Joel Embiid have been shooting better and Joel Embiid himself is just he just I mean there's no other way to say besides he is just playing out of his mind he is up to so if you look at the three main areas of the court he's shooting the best he's ever shot at the rim which is just a tiny bit of an increase of what he shot before but 70% at the rim he's shooting 37% on threes which is probably the few the lowest frequency of any area he shoots from but still a career high on all mid-range shots, he's shooting 53%, where his previous career high for a season was 41% from mid-range. And on long mid-range jumpers, Joel Embiid is shooting 60%. Like, if, he, if he's shooting 60% on shots from those pull-ups from 18 feet, like, I mean, what did you tell Tristan Thompson to do when I think Joel Embiid, like, he did the one move where he took a dribble, just leaned his shoulder into him, and then kind of stepped back for, and switched a jumper? Like, it's just unfair right now how well he's playing. Yeah, I think you just have to live with those ones. You know, I think that Boston was kind of allowing him to shoot from range if he wanted. I think of the um, – I, I think he bricked a three pretty hard with, like, a minute and a half left in the game, and – and Tice didn't even really bother to close out that hard. So I think you just kind of live with those ones. I know, I know he's hitting them pretty well, but um, you really just do best you can to deny him at the rim, which has kind of been an emphasis of Boston's defense so far this season, um, and, and just let shooters beat you a little bit. So I think uh, the adjustment hopefully would be Thompson just not allowing him to catch it so deep. And yeah, I mean, if he's hitting those, you just kind of live with them, which, which yeah, he has been recently. Daniel, I'm glad to see you're coming around to the Joel mid-range game sustainable train that I, yeah. I kind of have been conducting this season. No, um, yeah. in, our, in our opening pods, like I was saying, I think it was after we were in the Sixers' first game or so that are they really doing that much better? Is Joel, Joel Embiid just hitting ridiculous shots and that this is all going to fall off when 
they'll likely come down. But, you know, it's like the answer to the question, like, well, he's not going to keep doing this, but what if he does? So, because he's going to accept the uh, MVP trophy and then drain a 15 footer with, with his other hand. <laughs> no, um, he, like, I think it's his effective field goal percentage they have here, which is, it's not true shooting percentage, which takes into account free throws. So, Joel's always had a good true shooting percentage, but his effective field goal percentage, like what he's actually kind of shooting from the field on both twos and threes, never been that great. This year, it's actually pretty good, and then he's still getting to the line just as much. So he's really like – I think Joel Embiid's always been a defensive superstar who can anchor a great defense with just how, how big he is, how active he is, and how great instincts he has. But now he's just – offensively, he's, he can engineer pretty good offense for you whenever you need it. That makes him sound like a potential MVP, which is might be on track right now. Yeah, the key was – really the turnovers and learning how to uh, curtail those and pass out of double teams and recognize the double teams right away. And that's been the most impactful evolution of his offensive game this season. Um, everything else stems from having better spacing around him, which gives him more room to work. And the double teams have to be more careful, like who they're coming off of and they can't do it as quickly because guys will hurt them from beyond the arc in a way that, a lot of the roster didn't last year. So all of that helps him and he's helping himself by being better in areas of that were previously weaknesses for him. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all looking good. Uh, in regard to the Friday night's game uh, tonight, if you're listening to this, I, I, yeah, the Sixers are going to be, I think they were five and a half point favorites on Wednesday night. I'd expect it to be a similar line for Friday. Uh, it looks like Seth is going to be back. He's, currently listed as probable so that will be a nice little boost for Philadelphia he's got one of the top true shooting percentages in the league in the 10 or so games that he's actually been able to play this season and that that can only help um I wouldn't expect Marcus Smart to have as good of a shooting performance as he had on Wednesday night on you can't say that you know that's gonna happen (laughs) he had a crazy third quarter though I would say the same thing it was his highest scoring uh, point total of the year, I believe. He, he, he looked like, in the first half, he looked like he was on pace for one of those classic 4-for-15 four Marcus Smart games. Yeah. And then suddenly he was hitting, like, one-legged 16-foot fadeaways with a hand in his face, and I, I just – then I threw my hands up. So I don't expect that to repeat. This yeah. is what Marcus Smart does against the Sixers. We talked – I talked about this earlier. It's just Marcus Smart plays very well against the Sixers for whatever reason, and it always makes us very upset. This is interesting. I have not. Uh, I have not noticed this myself. This this is Sixers Twitter behind the curtain stuff you're getting, yeah. Brendan. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I I still wouldn't expect it. Marcus Smart might belie all expectations and continue to uh, wreck havoc on Philadelphia fans' souls, but we'll see. If he scores 30 and the Sixers lose like 105 to 97, I am tagging you in so many tweets. All right. I'll, and then I'll, I'll make sure any Tobias one-handed dunk to do this. Oh yeah. Brendan, have you, I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, so I wrote this big piece. I examined how Tobias Harris like only ever dunks with two hands. And that's, I have heard this. This is so funny. And then Literally, probably the next six games, he had at least one one-handed dunk in every game, including an absolute posterization of Bismack Biombo and 
you know, I don't get followed by that many people online. My mentions just burst into flames every time it happens. And it's actually at the point where I'm like, honestly, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that he was playing well. And this is the best basketball he's ever played with the Sixers. But it's also like, you know, geez, Tobias, can you please cool off? I can only take so much. <laughs> yeah. So I, I pulled it up while you were talking here. Last year, Marcus Smart shot 46% from three against the Sixers. That's, that seems low. Yeah. <laughs> year before was 25, I guess. Yeah. Well, they, they were all big ones. The, that is 26%. I can guarantee right. that. <laughs> yeah, it's very timely buckets. It feels like Kemba Walker in his career shoots 100% from three against the Sixers because I swear every time they play him, he makes his pull-up threes. That 60-point game against us a few and, years back was oh, yeah. particularly burned into our hearts and, and, and minds. In the bubble, they couldn't stop him. He, he was just destroying everybody. Yep, they do have that problem uh, against those, those kind of water bug point guards for sure. No, nothing scares Sixers fans more than a six foot two guard who can shoot off the dribble. Oh, Peyton Pritchard, here we come. <laughs> that's that's probably why they went with them, just to, to draft, particularly for the Sixers' weakness. Yeah, I think there was a it was a preseason game where a Jeff Teague like was lighting up the Sixers, and I was just like, you got to be kidding me! Jeff Teague gets to the Celtics, and now he can score on the Sixers at will, like. What is this? Yeah, it was like his only good game as a Celtic so far. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> no, yeah, I, d- I definitely think that in regards to the Friday night game that I-, I would pick the Sixers as long as Joel Embiid keeps playing like this. And, I mean, if Jason Tatum isn't playing just the Celtics' lack creation, it hurts their defense. He's, you know, surprise, surprise, when your best player isn't playing, you're not as good of a team. And if Seth Curry's right. back, I mean – Seth Curry, before he went out with his positive COVID-19 test, was shooting 60-60-100 splits from the – So, you know, that'll be nice to have back. Yeah. Brendan, do you think that's what Desmond Bain would have done with the Celtics? Oh, God. Yeah, I, I permanently have the picture saved of him being selected by the Celtics just because it, it hurts me, and I guess I love pain. I don't know. I guess. I mean, I guess I love pain could describe a lot of Sixers fans before this year. Yeah. <laughs> it's Fair enough. I also cover the Kings, so apparently I really do love pain. Oh, the Kings, I don't know if you've seen some of the graphs. Like show, they're just basic graphs, but it shows like teams' defensive points allowed per 100 possessions. The Kings are their own little island, like giving up 120 points every – I think I, I want to pull it up real quick. Yeah, 130. 130 over the last, uh, I believe, eight wow. games. Yeah, they're giving uh, up – 121 points per 100 which might be the worst ever yeah no it, it uh they are historically the worst offense ever so far into this season worst defense ever sorry yeah, say like worst offense but if it was the worst offense and the worst defense ever then oh poor sacramento yeah hey if it gets me cade cunningham yes no that that is the mentality um no but Although Rashawn, Rashawn Holmes still doing well in Sacramento. I, he was shooting like 85% on his floaters. He's their yeah. second best player probably after De'Aaron Fox right now. Yeah, leading the league in field goal percentage right now, 68%. And yeah, that push shot is, yeah, Doug Christie on the broadcast loves to say patent pending. Actually, he said it enough over the last two years that he says the patent has fully been approved at this point. No, Rashawn, I mean, is beloved by Sixers fans, although it's also a, it's, um, it's a painful 
reminder that the Sixers, if they just had any competent backup center, probably beat the Raptors in 2019 with the infamous. Now, this is the thing that always gets up uh, during the podcast. I bring up Mikhail Bridges and Jeremy Grant a lot, but Rashawn Holmes not being on the team and Greg Monroe going minus nine in one minute. Seven. In one minute? Oh, God. One and a half, but it was... That's because Joel had to play 45 minutes in that game, even though he didn't put up great counting stats in game seven, just because the Sixers got murdered every time he stepped off the court. Yeah, and Rashawn's interesting because I think he's a case of actually just increased opportunity. I don't even know that he is that much of a better player um, compared to, you know, some of the minutes that he had with Philadelphia and and Phoenix. Well, I, I should take that back. I mean, he's definitely improved, but I think a lot of it had to do with just increased opportunity. He used to have that push shot, but not as much like – it was like, oh, he, this is in his bag, and now the push shot, you know, it's it's his trademark move. He yeah. got it. So that's been a big thing. But he's always just been, you know, if you're – if you work as hard as Rashawn does, you're tall, you're agile, and you're – like, he's not stupid. He knows what he's doing all the time. So, like, it's hard to be a bad player if you have all those qualities put together. Yep. Sean, any final words on – Anything, including, including if you want to rehash the pain of the Greg Monroe minutes? <laughs> I'm good on that. Um, I, I think I've properly contextualized it, and I, I, I've moved on. I'll, I'll um, never properly contextualize it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm aware of this, yes. Um, I, I would just say that uh, it feels like we're too optimistic about tonight, and Brendan doesn't feel like the Celtics are going to win, so I, all of this has me worried. And yeah, I feel so, like Boston's going to win. <laughs> anyone listening, apologies in advance when Marcus Smart has scored 54 on like 10 for 15 shooting from three. And the six, the Sixers are now 10 and six. Emma's definitely hitting nine threes tonight. Oh. It's a Peyton Pritchard game. <laughs> the Peyton, All right. I don't know if Peyton Pritchard game would be worse or better than Marcus Smart drops 50 game. That's kind of interesting. It'd be worse for me. I never hear the end of my I hated the pick comments already. It, it would be like if Tobias Harris dunked with one hand ten times for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bittersweet. Oh, man. All right. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for coming on with us. It was great to have you on. Um, got anything you want to plug before we let you go? Um, yeah, I guess just uh just follow me on Twitter at Brendan Nunez MBA and uh, a lot of Kings and Celtics content going on there, like you said. Um Celtics Celtics blog podcast and yeah hope uh hoping for some fun matchups with both teams at full strength but thanks for having me on guys literally anytime yeah it was great to have you on Brendan well who knows given these teams histories there's a chance they'll match up in the playoffs and oh boy <laughs> so yeah thanks for coming on Brendan thank you very much all right Sean. thank you and uh first place in the east Philadelphia 76ers just savor it everyone We'll talk to you next week. to do's less time and an infinite number of tools to keep track of sometimes doing business has never felt harder but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals you can just use hubspot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier 
Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.